0: Hey, listen, I, I just this just struck me. Uh, I, I got some good news for you. If you're looking for a weird church, we're at I just <laughs> so I was sitting there worshiping and then I taught someone said amen way too loud. But if we were just uh, I just thought, thought thinking, thinking there that um, our, our church, if you've never been here and for some of you, you know, this uh, unapologetically contemporary, obviously the music we play, some of the things we do, uh, some of the programming, uh, unapologetically contemporary. And uh, so we, we don't. That's just who we are. That's how we identify ourselves. But let, me, let me tell you the other thing about our church unapologetically committed to teaching the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we've always just kind of said that, you know, like, like there seem to be churches who say, hey, we teach the Bible, we've been doing that for years, and they've also been doing the same church stuff for years. Like, you could rewind the clock to 1970 and walk in their church and you wouldn't know the difference, right? Okay? And there are other churches, incredibly relevant, cutting edge, just, you know, hip and all those kinds of things. And they just you know have all that kind of cool stuff when it comes to teaching. Like, every sermon's like 10 ways how to have a happy life, Right? Like there's no meat there, there's no there's anything that's not marketable. They just kind of go over that. And so I was reminded of that before I got up here because uh, obviously again worship today. Great job, Solstice. They came in, led our uh, students on their mission weekend this week, and we held them over. And uh, so that that is a good picture of worship. But then I'm going to teach on a subject that quite frankly. Uh, A lot of churches who play that kind of music would not touch with a 10-foot pole because it's not marketable. It's not popular. And let me me just explain that. But we've been in a series. We started off a few weeks ago. And I remember meeting with our staff as we were planning our our sermons out for the year. Uh, Sometimes it may look like we don't know what we're doing or where we're going, but we actually do have a plan. Uh, We plan our preaching series out for an entire year. So if you ask me, hey, what are you preaching? October the whatever, I can tell you, okay? And so uh, we're teaching through this. Uh, I just said, you know what? I said, I think that uh, we need to have a series uh, on the idea of judging and judgment. And all the other guys in the room said, that's great. You teach that, right? And I just said, I think it's a subject that, quite frankly, we're ignorant about. I mean, what, what does the Bible really teach? And there's always this debate about, should we judge other people? Should we not? And, and there's all kinds of questions. Related. I said, but I don't think people even understand uh, the idea of a just God. And, and as Christians do, or when we're saved, do we escape from that judgment? And so we looked at that the last two weeks and what we said is that the great white throne, or I'm sorry, at the judgment seat of Christ, that we'll stand before Jesus Christ and there'll be an evaluation. And at the end of that evaluation, uh, there'll be rewards given. Everybody receives some measure of reward, and that reward uh, will be simply crowns that we cast back at the feet of Jesus, according to Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And so we learn that that's what, so it's not this idea of knees knocking, standing before Jesus, the scenes of my life, and all the wrong things I did, playing behind me as I stand there. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. And so we answer that question, what does the Bible teach about judgment as it relates to believers? OK, and so we can just go on and we're going to wrap up the series in a couple weeks, uh, teaching through the idea about judging each other. And so uh, we're going to do that. But but here's the question that, quite honestly, we don't want to talk about. And the question is this. I get what happens to believers. But what about unbelievers? Right. I mean, like, like we don't want to talk about that. That's not Mark. You, you can't say the H word in church anymore. Right. Like we like, still let me tell you one of the things we do here. We teach the whole counsel of God's word. We stand unapologetically on the truth of God's Word. And if there is a real heaven to gain and there's a real hell to shun, then guess what? If you're going to love people, you better stand up and warn them against it, right? Am I right this morning? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about something that, quite frankly, churches don't talk about because they don't like it. But here's the thing. I can't uh, can't teach things I like. I teach what's true. That's the measure that God has given to me, alright? And so we're going to teach what God says about judgment last week, those two weeks, on believers. What does that look like? And this week, what about unbelievers? We're going to walk through that this morning, okay? So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20 this morning as we talk about uh, the idea of judgment for unbelievers. And with us, uh, Sorry, I had to cough. I'm going to blow your eardrums out. So, uh, we're, we're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 20. And this is what's known as the the great white throne judgment. Uh, The last two Sundays, we looked at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. And so that's what happens for believers. Every single believer will do that. But, but the question naturally comes, what about unbelievers? You said they're not going to be there, so what happens to them? And, and I saw this movie one time, and is that really what it's like? Or I went to this revival one time, and this guy was sweating and red-faced and angry, and he said it was going to be like this. Is that really what it's like? Or, or I read Dante's Inferno when I was growing up in school. And Is that what, you know, what, what actually does the Bible teach about that? And is it really going to happen? I mean, is it, if, if God's all-loving and He's a merciful God, is that just something that the church has made up to, to scare people or those kind of things? Things. And so, we're going to walk through exactly what the Bible teaches about this idea of what happens to the unsaved in a time of eternal judgment. I recognize that it doesn't win friends and influence people, but this is the truth of God's Word this morning as we look at the idea of what happens for those who don't know Jesus Christ in that time of eternal judgment. We've got believers. What does it look like for unbelievers? Okay? So, that's a question we're going to look at this morning. Sound like fun? Yeah, no. All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, the the great white throne judgments we're going to look at this morning. It says that I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, and whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Some of your translations may say hell, but honestly, Hades is a better translation. You'll find out uh, here near the end why. Uh, This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into uh, the lake of fire fire now heavy stuff right like you don't have to be a a bible scholar you may say you know what this whole uh end times and how that you know the idea of heaven and hell i'm still kind of weighing that out and so you're not even sure if you believe this and listen that's okay if you're tracking with us everybody's at different levels this morning i get that but you cannot deny that this is what the bible teaches and you cannot deny that when you walk through this passage there's some gravity here this is not a light subject this is not trivial this is something that, that has so much gravity to it uh but it's also a lot of confusion and again, is it really a place the worm dies not? I mean, is it, would there it really be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Is, how is it flames, but also uh, outer darkness? I and mean, how does that all? We're not going to solve all of those theological dilemmas. So, so here's what I did. When I talked through the judgment seat of Christ, I knew there was a lot of confusion. And every week when I talked through it, people came up and said, I had no idea that's what was really going to happen. I was always told this, or I always imagined this, or I was always those kind of things. And my experience is this. That any times it comes to the great white throne, there's even more confusion because no one will teach on it. No one wants to talk about it. And when the church has talked about it, quite frankly, it's not been biblical exegesis of the text. It's been fear mongering. Like, right, like just over and over. Hell's hot. I get it. But what what else? Right. What does the Bible really teach? Who's going to be there and and why? And all those kind of things. And so uh, let me just give you a disclaimer this morning. I'm going to walk through at a deeper level theologically than I normally do on a Sunday morning. But according to my kids, we're in big church right now. Is that right? Right. We're in big church. And so I think you can handle it. Let me me tell you why I'm going to do it on purpose. It's not to show, look how smart I am. Look at the theology and those kinds of Well, That's probably a little bit. but, But mostly, mostly it's because if we're going to stand up and proclaim, there's a place of eternal punishment. Right. If we're going to do that, then guess what? We had better know what we're talking about. We had better open up the Word of God and explain to people theologically, this is what the Bible teaches. You may not like it. You may not believe in it yet. You may, you know, But this is what the Bible teaches. And I want you to understand that something that there's so much confusion on. Because we spend a lot of energy sending people on mission. you understand that? Like over a ten year period, we're going to give a, a half a million dollars to mission. And that's probably half what I want to give, Okay. We're sending people to Kenya. We're sending people to Haiti. We just sent 51 students on mission in their community. By the way, can we celebrate that? Is that not incredible? Why? And so, so here's the question. Why? Some people giving up their vacations and spending thousands of dollars to go all around the world. Why? Because of exactly what I'm going to teach about today. In Revelation chapter 20. So, when I wrote this down, I just basically said, okay, I pretend I never knew about this. I never took a seminary class. This is the first time I ever heard about this. Oh, this is the first time I've ever read this passage. What are the questions, if that were me, what are the questions I would have? And so, I basically wrote down five questions I would have if this is the first time I've ever heard this. And you say, well, I have different questions. Well, let me remind you this morning. I have the microphone, okay? And so... Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through five basic questions. And my guess is, is that some of your questions and some of mine will, will overlap. And if there's some questions you have afterwards, I'll be happy to talk or email me this week and to answer those kinds of things. OK, so that's how we're going to walk through five questions about the great white throne judgment. What the Bible really actually teaches about this. All right. Here's the first question. What is the great white throne judgment? And I'm starting off the foundation. I'm not assuming that everybody did uh, did not grow up in church or maybe here this morning you're not a Christian. You're kind of kind of still weighing this thing out. So I'm just going to start off totally at the foundation about what is the great white throne judgment. Okay, here's the answer. It's a time for the unsaved to be judged. It's a time for the unsaved to be judged. And we said last week that or last two weeks that Christians will go through a time of judgment or evaluation. And that's called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. And so what happens to non-Christians? Well, the Bible teaches that they too will go through a time of evaluation or a time to be judged at the great white throne judgment. Now, one of the descriptions of the, of the, in the Bible of Satan is this. It's a great deceiver or a liar. And one of the great deceptions is this. That yes, there's a heaven to gain, but there's not a hell to, be, to shun. That's, a, that's just a state of mind. It's something the church has taught for years, but it's really not true. It's just it's what the church uses to kind of scare people into behaving or, or believing or those, those kinds of things. Right. Matter of fact, when they surveyed culture, uh, people just out in culture kind of made on the street interviews. Here was the research, what it said. It said that when they asked people about their beliefs about the afterlife, that over 95 percent of the people surveyed said, I believe in heaven. OK. of the people surveyed said, I believe in heaven. When they surveyed those same people, they said, well, what do you believe about about hell and and afterlife? Only 50% of the people said, I believe in hell. 95% said, I believe in heaven. 50% said, I believe in hell. And of those surveyed, when they asked them, they said, which one are you going to go to? Only 1% said, if there's a hell, I will go there. Do you get that? Now contrast that with the truth of God's Word. When the Bible says this, that broad is the path to destruction and many will enter in. And narrow is the gate, and few will enter in when it comes to heaven. So, you see, our culture is in direct contrast to the truth of God's word about eternity, who's going, who's not, and all those things. And so, if you and I are going to stand up and say, hey, this is what's going to happen, we had better know our stuff. And so, pay attention this morning, because I'm going to learn you something, all right, about what the Bible actually teaches. So, what is it? It's a time for the unsaved to be judged. And we don't like that because in our, our idea that, that, that what we've created God in American Christianity is a God who is benevolent and, and, and a God who is uh, all loving and a God who is merciful. And we've recreated this more user friendly God, stripped him of all of his justice, all of his holiness and reinvented this God that's a lot more user friendly and a lot more marketable. And those are the only facets we teach. But the Bible teaches in this passage, there will be a just and holy God bring the unsaved before Him for a time of judgment. And listen, it is a trial unlike any trial you've ever witnessed on TV or in person. John MacArthur in his commentary said this about this trial. He said, this is man's last day in God's court. This day of judgment, this tribunal, this court, this trial will not be like the familiar trials held on earth. For those on trial, this day will experience a very different kind of court. There'll be no debate about guilt or innocence. There'll be a prosecutor, but no defender. There'll be an accuser, but no advocate. There'll be an indictment, but no case for the charge. There'll be a swift presentation of the convicting evidence, but no rebuttal. A testimony, but no cross-examination. There'll be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury. There'll be a sentence, but no appeal. A punishment with no parole. In a jail with no escape. Great description of exactly what this passage is teaching. Look at verse 12, what it describes there. It says, and I saw the dead, small and great. In other words, everybody. It's just encompassing everybody here. Okay? Significant, insignificant, everybody. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open." another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, listen, when I read through this this week, I thought, well, let's pretend I didn't know what that meant or, or I've never read this or studied this or, or taught this or anything. Uh, there, there's lots of questions built in uh, verse 12, is there not? I mean, w- w- what is he talking about? The dead, small and great. But what is what is ri- le- he talks about? Books, being, is there more than one book? Because he talks about books, plural book of life. And, and then there seem to be some other books. Well, what's written in those books? Right. But, and if there's suffering in there, is it in pencil or is it in pen? Well, I mean, can, like, can you're you in there, but now you're not, and now you're in this book, and I read, you know, there's their markings and all those. What, what exactly is going to take place? And what's it going to say, and who are standing before, and all of those kinds of things. And there's a lot of mystery about that. And I'm not going to solve all those things. We're going to touch on some of these. We're going to teach through some of these this morning. But you and I cannot disagree the fact that there's going to be a time of evaluation when the dead will stand before God in a time of judgment and they will be evaluated. And you say, well, that's, that's heavy. Listen, I agree. It's so heavy, as a matter of fact, that we're leveraging everything we can to take the message of Jesus Christ to the people who one day might be standing there. That's how serious it is. And so the Bible clearly teaches that this is a time where the unsaved will stand before God in a time of judgment known as the great white throne. And some books will be open and some evaluations will be made and some sentencing will take place. All right. So that's that's what exactly is at the very foundational level. All right. Let me get a little more technical this morning. So that's what will happen. Here's the second question. When is it going to happen? Like every time somebody dies that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I mean, do they immediately go before the great white throne? Is, I mean, is it like, it is, you know, the Bible says that it's point man once to die and after this is a judgment. So is that like immediate or is there like a period of time? Do they, do they hang out in limbo for a while and then all those kinds of things? And so uh, when will it take place? And again, I'm going to get a little technical on want you put your thinking caps on this morning because this is so serious that we had better know what we're talking about and our answers had better come from the truth of God's Word, okay? So when will it happen? My understanding is this. In between Christ's thousand-year reign on earth and the creation of the new heaven And the new earth in between the reign of Christ on earth, Revelation chapter 20, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 21, verse one. Okay. now, if we're going to make a case, this is a literal event, uh, then there should be some literal time frame, some chronology that we can kind of track out. This is a little different. Last week, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ. And I said, when is it? We know that it's future, but the Bible's a little mysterious about it. And we're not totally sure the timing, but it appears, according to Revelation 22, that takes place sometime after the rapture. But listen, when it comes to the great white throne, the Bible gives lots of detail related to the timing. All right. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the next 120 seconds and give you a prophecy lesson. OK, so if you're like, I'm not sure of this whole end times and I read some of those books, then I heard somebody teach this and, and somebody else taught this in church, I'm totally confused. Listen, at the end of the next two minutes, you're going to be an absolute expert on prophecy. All right. You're going to know everything that you need to know about prophecy. So let me kind of walk you through the chain of events. The Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 22, where Jesus said, I'm coming quickly and I'm coming to reward those based on what they've done. All right. He says, I'm coming back to my church. And so we would call that event the rapture. And maybe you've heard that lots of times, but you haven't understood. Or maybe you thought, like, oh, I don't even know what that means. Is that like that left behind book? Is that, is that kind of related to those things? Well, Listen, here's what the Bible teaches about the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four is the strongest verse in the New Testament about the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 17. And in describing this event, here's what the Bible says. Listen, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Euphemism for death. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And here's what he says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. Now, that is what's known as the rapture. It's also called the first resurrection or the resurrection of the just. And so what's going to take place is that when Christ comes and appears in the air, He'll call the church, those who've been saved, He'll call the church heavenward. The dead in Christ will rise first and then those who remain will be changed. How fast? Twinkly of an eye is what Scripture says. How fast is that? One fifty second of a second is what science said. How impressive was that? Amen? Like that I knew that just like that, right? Totally a beacon of useless information. But anyway... Here's what it says. That after that time, they'll come on the earth a time of tribulation. And at the midpoint of that, it'll come a time of great tribulation is what Revelation says. Like it'll go from bad to worse. And there's a lot of disagreement about that. But listen, uh, most conservative scholars would say that, that you know, there's, there's a time of tribulation. There's a little disagreement on the timing. Listen, my personal position. And you're, you're, if you disagree, you're totally free to be wrong this morning. I just want to share that with you, okay? Is that it'll be a time of seven years of tribulation. Okay? And so there'll be a time of seven years of tribulation. What happens after that? And then Christ will come and descend on the earth with the saints and will set up a literal 1,000 year kingdom. All right? So let me walk you through this time wise. Rapture. When is that? We don't know. Okay? Twinkle of an eye. That fast. Rapture. Called up. Meet Christ in the air. Seven years of tribulation. Some people say that Christ comes back in the second coming. Hear me this morning. If you're listening, say amen. I'm going to go on anyway. Okay? The rapture and the second coming are not the same things. You understand that rapture? We meet him in the air. Second coming, we come down with him and set up camp on the earth. You understand that? And so some people say that Christ comes back at the midpoint. Uh, Some guys, I respect teach that some people say at the end of that tribulation period. That's that's where I fall. Uh, But I'm not shaming those who don't because there's some support for that. I get that. But at the end of that time, Christ will come back and set up a literal kingdom where the saints will rule and reign with him. Listen, the people will be born and they'll die during that time, people will receive Christ, reject Christ during that time, those who are born during that time, but He'll rule around the earth for a thousand years. You see, that is such a fairy tale sounding thing. Where did you get that from? Listen, it's crazy. I got it from the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. Look with me. Verse 4. And I saw the thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witnesses of Jesus and for the Word of God. Now, now, now tune in this right here. Listen. Most of you know this. Now, you don't know what it means, but, but here's what you know. That 666 is a bad number. Do you, do you know that? Like some of you are not sure what it means. You just know that if somebody's got that tattoo, then you've got to give them one of these. Maybe even one of these if you see them, right? Like you just know that it's bad. OK, Well, what happens is this. The mark of the beast will those who uh, during that time on the earth if they say, I, I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. They'll have to give their lives. They'll, they'll literally have to be martyred to deny the mark of the beast. So what happens then? Verse four. And those who do not worship the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Let me tell you about this number, according to my understanding. By 666, the mark of the beast, all that stuff. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm not worried about it. You know why? Because I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be raptured out. Right? So the people are like, oh. <laughs> like, like I remember the cash register. Like, like, you know, they're ringing up. And I remember this little event one time. Several years ago, I'm ringing up. Oh, the total is 666. I'm just going to round it up a penny. I was like, it's cool. I won't be there. Right, like I was just told. But I mean, in our culture, listen. My understanding is, I'm not going to be there. I'm not worried about that number at all. Right? I'm already raptured out. I'm already in the presence of God. Okay. And so that happens, and they lived and reigned with Christ. What's it say? For a thousand years, they reigned with Christ for a thousand. That's known as the millennium. It means a thousand. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because here's my understanding: the Great White Throne, church is raptured out period of tribulation. Seven years, midpoint, great tribulation. At the end of that, Jesus Christ descends. That's why the Bible, at the ascension of Christ, when they said, why are you weeping? This Jesus who's ascender will come again in like manner. He'll touch down again to set up His kingdom. And then He'll set up His kingdom. He'll reign, reign with Him for a thousand years. Some people will be born. Some people will receive Christ. Some people reject Christ. You say, how do people reject Christ when He's there reigning on the earth? The same way they're rejecting the first time when He was here the first time. Do you understand that? It's not the evidence that's unseen. It's the hardness of their hearts. And at the end of that thousand years, the great white throne will take place. And so if someone asks you, you think that's going to happen? When's it going to happen? Listen, uh, it probably was 240 seconds, but I just walked you through a little prophecy timeline. Because again, if we're going to get up and teach it, you had better know what you're talking about before you make claims like that, okay? And so when what will it happen? It's the unsaved being judged. When will it happen? At the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. And what happens after that? Then those who are judged, they're cast in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Revelation 21, 1. I saw a new heaven, new earth created. All right. And so that's exactly the time frame of what's going to happen. Now, I get some of the technicalities, right? I understand who's going to be there. I get the timeline just me through. I understand that. Or I understand what it is. But let's ask the question. Who's going to be there? Who's really, according to Scripture, who's really going to be there? All right. Now I'm gonna get a little technical here, but I want you to hang with me because this is important. The idea here is, look at verse 11, what he says Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it. Well, who is that? Is that God the Father? Is that Jesus? Listen, my understanding is I believe that's Jesus. Uh, John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29 says that all judgment was given to the Son. So I believe that's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne. I believe the answer is Jesus and the resurrected unsaved. Resurrected unsaved will be there at the great white throne judgment. Keep reading, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. All right? Go down to verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death in Hades, and again, some translations say hell. Hades is a better translation. Delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his words. Now, Now, if you're listening, Here's what you're thinking. You just said that the resurrection already happened called the rapture. Like the dead in Christ remain and those who are alive are caught up and join them in the air. Here's Here's what the Bible teaches. There are two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the just and there's the resurrection of the unjust. There's the resurrection of the saved. There's the resurrection of the unsaved. You say, are you making that up? Or is that actually in the Bible? What do you think? It's actually in the Bible, right? Where do you get that from? Or John chapter five. Listen to John chapter five. Don't be surprised. John chapter five, this is verse 28. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead, which ones all the dead will hear the voice of God's son, they will rise. Those who have done good, in other words, those who have given good fruit, evidence of genuine salvation will rise to experience eternal life. We understand that. We just talked through that, right? What else, though? And those who continue in evil, in other words, give testimony, they were never converted. Those who continue evil will, will rise to experience judgment. And so, Pastor, you're saying the Bible, there's two. There's the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Absolutely, that's what I'm teaching this morning. You see, is that anywhere else in Scripture? Look at Revelation chapter 20 this morning. Verse 6. Blessed and holy who, who has part in the what? First resurrection. Why well, would you mention a first resurrection if there's not a second? What happens if you're the first resurrection? You got raptured out. You're spared the second death. What's the second death? It's hell. It's where my soul has no longer can commune with God. There's no potential anymore for me to have a relationship with God. And so the Bible teaches that the saved will be resurrected to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the unsaved will be literally resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment. Now, this is in my notes, but I'm just going to keep walking, okay? Have you ever heard this? Like that people said that I don't I don't believe in hell. Like it's too horrible to think about that a loving God would never do that. And, and, and if there's a hell, it's just a state of mind. Like it's just or you just cease to exist or you know, just, it's, it's not literal. I don't believe in a literal hell. Let me ask you a question. Why would God literally resurrect the bodies of the unsaved to reunite them with their soul? Literally resurrect them with their bodies to send them to a non-literal place. Does that make sense at all? Can we just be honest? It doesn't make sense. But the reason we take that is because we don't like the truth of God's Word. And so because we don't like it, we reject it. But listen, if you have integrity with the Scriptures, you can't teach that with the integrity. Resurrection of the just. Resurrection of the unjust. The first resurrection. The second resurrection is who He talks about. So who's going to be the Bible says that the Jesus Christ, the judgment's been given to Him. John chapter 5. Verses 28, 29. The Bible also says that the resurrected unsaved will stand before God, Jesus Christ, in a time of judgment. Here's the next logical question. I understand what it is. I get the flow of events. At least I kind of think I get the flow of events right. I understand who's going to be there and what's going to happen. They're going to stand before Jesus Christ, but 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 they're going to have a time of judgment at the great white throne judgment. But here's the next logical question. Then, what would be the basis of that trial? Like, I mean, like what, like what exactly are they on? trial? When we as believers stand there, it's our it's our works, right? We're offering up our service to Christ, all the things, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, all the good things we did that impacted the kingdom of God and had impact in eternity. All right. Our motives and our actions is what scripture teaches. And then the things that were a total waste of time to waste our life on wood, hay and stubble. So I get it for believers. But what's on trial for unbelievers? Like, like what's what's going to be the basis of that trial? Here's the answer. The works of the unsaved. The works of the unsaved. Now, here's the only good news about hell. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, like, if there's a hell, I'm not going. Why is that? Because I'm a good person. Have you not heard that before? Like the the idea that, listen, there's a good God who lives in a good place and good people go there. And I'm a good person. And and so my good works that when I stand before God about whether or not I get into heaven, that I want to be evaluated based on my good works because I'm a good person and God knows that and God understands that. And so he's a good God. So God's going to let me in because I'm a good person. It's evidenced by the good things or the good works that I've done. So so what's the good news in that? Listen, if that's your that's where you are this morning or, you know, people like that, they say, I want to stand before God on the merit of my good works. listen. Good news. That's exactly what's going to happen. That is exactly what's going to happen. That they will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be evaluated based on their works. So what they wanted all along, the only good news in this is that's exactly what's going to happen. You say, where do you get that from? Look at verse 12 and 13 again. And I saw the dead, small and great, everybody standing before God. Second person of Trinity, Jesus Christ, God, the son. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, let me, let me just park here for a minute. Now, I, I'm just listening. I'm, I'm speculating at this point. Because I've been asked this lots of times. Like, what is the book of life? What's for the name of the redeemed who are written down in there? And everyone who received Jesus Christ, their name is found written in the book of life. OK, but it says books plural. Matter of fact, it goes on and even gives an adjective. It says another book. And so is there multiple books? There appears to be. Matter of fact, if you go back into Daniel, there's even reference to that back in there. OK, and so what, what's in this other? I get the book of life. Everyone saved. your name's found written in the book of life. Right. But what's in this other book? And so I'm just going like, to totally speculate. Do not go out there and put on Facebook. We solved the mystery in our church this morning. Right. Like I know what's in there. I don't. I'm speculating. But my guess is, and it's totally a guess based on the context of this passage, my guess is if one's the book of life, then one's the book of works. And in there written down, they're, what are they being evaluated on? Their works. And in that book of works, the, the record is opened. And all the works are recorded standing before God saying, I want to be evaluated on my works. Great. I've got them re- I'm going to open those up. And you know what the end result's going to be? Not good enough. Not good enough. You say that's harsh. Listen, let me let me tell you why. The measuring stick is not the person sitting next to you this morning. Do you understand that? Like this make you guys nervous when I get close. Because <laughs> I spit a lot. Listen, the, the measuring stick is, is not your uncle who is a pastor. The measuring stick is not that person who lives across the street from you that they claim to know Jesus Christ, but you saw them out yelling at their kids in the yard or you know, whatever, and you don't do that, and so you're going to heaven. Listen, the measuring stick is not the people around you. It's the Jesus Christ above you. That's the measuring stick. You say, well, that's unfair. I, I can't measure up. That's the whole point of the gospel. That God in His love knew you would never measure up, so He sent His own Son to die on the cross in your place, and that when you receive Him, He stands in your place. You're you're guilty, but pardoned, with a new standing before God. And so when I stand there, so I don't want to be. My works won't measure up. Why? Because they don't compare to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And for every person who says, I think I should get to heaven because I'm a good person, what they're really saying, whether they mean to or not, is this. I think my good works are equal to what Jesus did on the cross. But I don't need the cross. My life has been so righteous. Can I tell you this? My life has not been righteous. My life's had a lot of unrighteousness in it. But thank God for the gospel. That while I was still in my sin, God sent His Son to die for me. While I was unlovable, God loved me enough to send Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to heaven because I'm better than you or because I'm a pastor. I'm going because Jesus Christ stood in my place and I received him because I don't want to be judged on my works. Why? Because there's a spotty record there, if I'm honest. And so when some people say, I want to be judged on my works. Listen, you can tell them with integrity from the truth of God's word. Hey, that's exactly what's going to happen. But I know the end result and it ain't pretty. What will it be? What will be the sins? Last question. What is the sins? What will be the sins? Here's the answer. Condemnation. Condemnation. You say, that sounds so harsh and so final. Let me tell you why it sounds that way. Because it is. It's meant to carry the full gravity of what it implies. Condemned before a holy and just God. Where do you get that from? Look at verse 14 and 15. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, in other words, those who are evaluated based on their works, was cast into the lake of fire. And so do you see there's no margin here? Of the idea that one day I'm going to stand before God and my good's going to be my bad. What does he say there? Those not found written in the book of life, those who said, I want to be judged by my good works, they were cast into the lake of fire. Condemnation. Now, a couple years ago, we, we taught in a series, uh, and I taught just a little bit on hell. And so listen, there's so much confusion about this. The church is scared to death to teach on it. But can I tell you this, that we have to teach, well, let me tell you why, because the Bible talks about it and we're to teach the whole counsel of God's word. And the Bible says that all scripture is given for by inspiration is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, all of it, even the parts of not like. the whole counsel of God's word. Matter of fact, that Jesus himself, if you combine all the biblical authors and what they taught about hell and combined them, Jesus taught more on hell than they did. And so if Jesus speaks about it, if the Bible talks about it, listen, that we're going to preach and teach with integrity, then we've got to teach it. We've got to preach it. If we we're going to say people are going to go there and we're going to spend millions of dollars trying to rescue people with their missions, we had better know what we're talking about. All right. So let me just give you an overview. I'm not going to solve every theological dilemma. I'm not going to answer every question about the doctrine of hell. But I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights uh, this morning so that we can put on our uh, idea uh, framework a little bit that's going on here. All right. So what, what is hell? We understand according to Scripture. Number one, it is a literal place. It's a literal place. Now, there's some disagreement about some of the literal adjectives. Is, is, there, is there literal flames, or is that more just symbolic of judgment? Because the Bible talks about both. Is it really a place where the worm dies not? Is it really a place where it's weeping and gnashing of teeth? How is it a lake of fire and there's still outer darkness? Listen, there's lots of things that we're not sure about, but the Bible teaches that it is a literal place. Now, here's something interesting to me. I've taught that because I think the Bible teaches that. But I've had people say this. I don't think it's literal. I think it's just a state of mind. And every single time that I've had someone encounter that, what I've said is, well, can I ask you another question? Yes. I said, do you think heaven's literal? Oh, absolutely. I said, do you think all the descriptions about heaven in Revelation 21 is literal? Streets of gold and jasper walls and all those. Absolutely. I can't wait to get there. I said, where'd you hear that about heaven, that description? I heard Revelation 21. And I said, then how'd you go with your description about hell? Because in the chapter before, it describes it so clearly. You see, if we're honest this morning, is we just don't like the thought of it. It's a literal place. Jesus, in speaking about heaven, John chapter 14, verse 2, says, I go to prepare a place for you. The word place is the word tophos in Greek. It means a geographical location. What is that? It's a little dwelling place. Now, I'm going to break some hearts right now, okay? But just trust me this morning. You're not going to get a mansion when you go to heaven, all (sighs) right? Right? That literally in my father's house, singular, there are many dwelling places is what the original language says. The father's house, many dwelling places in there. Multiple. How big is it? Big enough for everybody who's ever trusted Christ. Okay. And listen, I recognize that I just rocked some of your theology, but I just, it's the truth of God's word. Okay. But it describes a literal place, the Father's house. So does it make any sense there's not a literal place where the unsafe go? Of course not. And if we're honest this morning, we just don't like the thought of it, so we try to erase it. Jesus is speaking about eternity, Matthew chapter five, verse twenty six, said these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Makes no distinction about the littleness of the geography of the one. So hell is a little place. Secondly, what is hell? It's a just consequence. It's a just consequence. Now, have you ever wondered this, or heard somebody say this? Why would loving God send anyone to hell? Why would God do that? Hear me this morning. It's a just consequence. It's God finally giving people over what they wanted their whole whole, whole life to be apart from God to make their own decisions. And God says, "That's a, listen. That's what you wanted your whole life. I'm going to turn you over to that. You didn't want any part of me. Listen. What's the alternative? That people want no part of God on earth. That God forces them to spend eternity with Him in heaven. That's a just consequence." Look at verse 13. What's it saying? Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And so there are works that I want nothing to do with God. And guess what? It's a just consequence. It's the overflow of that. Tim Keller, one of the brightest minds in evangelical Christianity, author, pastor, redeemer, Presbyterian Church in New York City, said this. He said, hell is God actively giving us up for what we have freely chosen to go our own way, to be our own master, the captain of our soul, to get away from him. And his control. J.A. Packer said, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. He goes on to say this about the nature of hell. He said, the idea of hell is implausible to people because they see it as unfair. That infinite punishment would be meted out for comparably minor, finite false steps, like not embracing Jesus. He said, also, no one knows anyone, including themselves, that seems bad enough to merit hell. But the biblical teaching on hell answers both these objections. Listen to this. First, it tells us that people only get in the afterlife what they most wanted, either to have God as their master or to be their own master. And secondly, it tells us that hell is a natural consequence. It's simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God and God in His infinite justice sends us to where we wanted to go. And so when a person says, I want nothing to do with God, then God says, you know what? But listen, I'm I'm going to give you a wish for all of eternity. I'll tell you lastly, we're, we're almost out of time. Lastly, hell is a final state. It's a final state. Verse 14. The death of Hades were cast in a lake of fire. And this is the second death. Second death, why? My, my soul has no longer the ability to commune with God. It's that, that, irreversible. It's not purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's nowhere found in the truth of God's Word. Irreversible. Death in Hades. What, what is that? Listen, just real quickly here. Hades is the place where the unsaved souls go until they're resurrected with their bodies to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. So people ask me, do people who are unsaved die and go to hell today? The answer is no, in the sense of the eternal lake of fire that's a future after the great white throne. But they go to a place called Hades, the holding place. Is it a place of anguish? Absolutely. Is it irreversible? Absolutely. Is it totally uh, devoid of God and His presence and His mercy and His common grace? Absolutely. And what's going to happen they will be resurrected with their bodies, stand before the great white throne and then cast into a lake of fire irreversible it's a literal place it's an irreversible place it's a just consequence you see that is heavy I agree I agree that's why I risk so much for missions it's because those who have never heard need to hear you say is there any good news about hell and what you just taught today there is some good news ready here it is there's good news and his name is Jesus. And he wants to rescue you. He wants to rescue you. The only question is will you let him? We receive the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the deliverer for all of eternity. We invite you to bow your heads this morning, if you would.